0: We have three passages of Scripture in front of us. The major theme that we're looking at is the role and the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, the Spirit of the living God, in the coming of the Savior, in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. So this provides kind of a background for us. One passage is a quotation from Isaiah. Another is part of the narrative in the Gospel of Luke. And then a reference forward to the early church in the book of Acts. So here now the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then turning to the Gospel of Luke, And then finally, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You noticed in each of those passages a reference was made to the Spirit of God, that is the third person of the triune God. We believe that God is one God, one in essence, one in eternality, one in all of His attributes. But He is three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three Distinct persons which make a Godhead. And don't ask me to explain any of that. Because I have, as many of you probably have contemplated it all your life. And I've read multiple volumes dedicated to the subject of the Trinity. And I feel like I have an intuitive understanding, but I just can't explain it. Every illustration that I've heard is wrong. Wrong. Most of them illustrate some kind of Sabellianism or modalism or some other classic heresy. It's a mystery. Wonderful, majestic mystery. But the revelation that God gives us is very obvious. They are always spoken of as these three distinct persons doing the work of the one divine deity. Deity. Isn't that interesting? And we see it as we go back. Let me give you just a quick sketch. I know you know these things, but the first reference to the Holy Spirit anywhere in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It mentions that the Spirit of God says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep of the waters. Notice this, the Spirit of God is hovering over, doing His creative work. It's been pointed out, I think, just very deliberately and skillfully by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson that the work of the Holy Spirit seems to center around two things that He does. He finds the earth without form and the spirit of god gives the earth formation he finds the earth void empty and he fills the earth with life and with vegetation and with all the things of the created order in other words the spirit of god hovers over and forms and fills Our passage in Luke said that the Spirit of God will will come upon you. And that's what's going on. That's how the Spirit of God works. The Spirit of God hovers over and He comes upon and then He does His marvelous and mysterious work. The next strong reference we find to the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 6 where The world had become so wicked through sin in the days of Noah and the rampant sin and the evil thoughts and all of the evil intents and actions and the humanity had become so corrupt the Bible said God regretted that He had made mankind. What a sad thing. It's because He had created man as His image and you look into the mirror and God looks into the image of Himself. He looks into the mirror and He sees Himself. That's the image of God and God looked into the mirror that is humanity, didn't see himself anymore. He saw an ugly and a vile people. He saw ungodliness, not godliness. And so God said that he would destroy humanity from off the earth. And one of the things that God did in his contemplations was the Holy Spirit said, I will not always strive, I will not always contend with man. I'm just not going to do my work. I'm not going to come upon them. I'm not going to do those things and force them into places they don't want to go. I'm just tired of working with such a depraved creature. The next place we find a strong mention of the Holy Spirit is in the days of Moses. When God led the people out of Egypt, He led them into the wilderness and there God appeared Mount Sinai. And on the mountain, God gave all of the particulars of how He wanted the, t- the tabernacle built, how He wanted the tabernacle furnished, and how He wanted the tabernacle to operate and what the priests were to wear. And all sorts of things. The furniture that was there. The Ark of the Covenant. The candlesticks. The brazen altar. And all of those things. And, and curtains. And, and all of the things. The poles and the staves. And, and everything that was in the tabernacle. Why was God so particular upon the mountain. That they build the tabernacle. Precisely as God said build it. It's because the tabernacle is an image. A picture. A type of Jesus Christ. And it had to have precision and perfection in order to represent Jesus Christ, who later would come in the flesh and tabernacle among us. But notice what the Lord said. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 31, "'See, I have called by my name Bazaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God.' With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him along with one from the tribe of Dan, and I've given all these able men ability that... They may make all that I have commanded you, the ten of meeting, the ark of testimony, the mercy seat, all the furnishings, the table, the utensils, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, the basin, the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments for his son to serve as priest, the anointing oil and all the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you they shall do. Think about that. God's Spirit is working with these men, come upon these craftsmen, in order that they might do everything in designing and producing the tabernacle in its perfection, in its precision, which was a picture of Christ. What was the Holy Spirit doing over the womb of the Virgin Mary? He was filling and forming and crafting the God-man. Filling and forming in her womb the man who would be completely deity in every way. Supreme deity, the second person, the Son of God Himself. And yet, would also be fully formed, fully filled humanity. And we saw this spelled out in the work that the Spirit of God is doing. That's what He's doing. And the text of Matthew that talks about the same general material where an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream spells out into the particulars and you've read it over and over and over how it's very careful to, to word things so that you know that Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married in a fully legal binding covenant, but yet they had not come together as husband and wife. And before they ever were married and they ever came together as husband and wife, she had conceived in her virgin womb the God-man, the Christ child. And the Bible is very, very clear that it was a real and a natural birth. We read the story in Bethlehem, how she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. A real baby. But He was the Son of God. This too, the story of the incarnation, along with the story of the Trinity. Don't ask me to explain it. How completely... We understand it as largely a measure of how saturated we are with the very mind of God in our own life. Now there's an interesting passage. We've looked at several prophecies and I want to take a moment to look at the one that we, we read uh, at first. It goes back to the prophecy in Isaiah 11. We saw the prophecy in Isaiah 7 where it says, A virgin will conceive and bear a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. We have taken two Sundays to see the nature of the prophecies of chapter 9 of Isaiah where the prophet there talks about that there would come one who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would sit upon the throne of David and he would have a government that would be of no end. We talk about God's righteous government in Christ as that enthroned king last week. Today, let's look at the passage and see what it tells us about the work of the Spirit of God in the life of and upon the Christ. And this prophecy is given, and we only see read two verses of it here. In chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Got to think about that for a minute to see what it means, don't you? (laughs) Who's Jesse? That may be the first good question to ask. Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse was David's father. You remember of the tribe of Judah? We looked at the life of King David back some months ago, and Jesse was one of the families there in Judah and had sons, and David was one of those sons, the last of the sons actually in sequence. So, Jesse. Is David's father, human father. Well, what does it mean, a stump of Jesse? (laughs) Well, the picture is obvious. It's that of a felled tree, a tree that has fallen by being chopped down. And you've seen this in your walking around in the woods and jogging and going down to the ranch. You see an old Stump that's been sawed down or cut down or chopped down, and the tree has been felled and long gone. Well, that's the house of David. The house of David was grew out of the root system and the stump of his father Jesse. And that was his heritage, his lineage. But the booth of David, or the house of David, had fallen. There's passages that predicted in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, it's declared to have happened. The tabernacle of David fell. So it's all over. The king came, he rose up, he was a mighty tree and he was cut down and that's the end of it. No, no, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it at all. That old stump that looks like it's dry, that looks like it's barren, Like a virgin womb, there is nothing in it, nothing to it, nothing that can be fruitful. Out of that dry, dead stump of Jesse comes a little branch shooting up out. You've seen that out there in the woods. You see a little fresh, what's a little shoot, a little branch, a little sapling that comes right up out of the middle of that old stump and begins to grow. And as it begins to grow, it becomes a whole new tree. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is that branch that replaces David in many ways. He will bring the real kingdom. He is the true tree trunk, the true vine that will grow up out of the stump and will bring forth. And it says He will bring forth and bear fruit. That's the life of Christ. It's interesting that it's called a shoot. It's called a branch. The word for branch in the Hebrew, or shoot, is the word netzar. And that's the root word of the name of the town, Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? Jesus grew up in a town whose root word meaning Was that of a branch, of a shoot, and that's who Jesus is. And the psalm, I mean the uh, song, song in Isaiah, in chapter sixty-one, talks about how the thing that was going to make all of this happen—this bearing of fruit, this accomplishment of God's will, this restoration of the kingdom, this restoring of the stump of Jesse, this rebuilding of the tabernacle of David—the way this is going to happen is going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Zerubbabel the prophet said, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's how God's work is going to be accomplished in His Son. It's going to be accomplished through the power of His Spirit. And we see that in the life of Christ all the way. There's a summary of it given here in this passage. It said, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Remember I told you the key passage out of Luke is the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that's what happened to Christ in his life. The Holy Spirit came upon him. We see it at the baptism with the descent of the dove. And we hear him reading in the synagogue where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. So it's the Spirit of the Lord upon the Christ who's going to be the power, the enabling, the operating force of the life and ministry of Christ. And we see it all the way through. The first thing the Spirit did to the Lord after His baptism and His receipt of the mighty power and the anointing, the the christening, the baptizing, the anointing of Christ at His baptism was the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness. If the Holy Spirit comes upon me, I hope that doesn't happen to me first. The first thing that happens is I go into the wilderness. But that's what happened. Christ went into the wilderness. And there he was with the wild beast. Sounds a lot like King David with the bear and the lion and out in the wilderness in the the pastures with the sheep. And the Lord then, the Lord God Almighty the Father shaped and molded and equipped his son to do the work that he was to do by the power of his sovereign spirit. And how's that? What is that work? Well, it's summarized in the next... Three phrases, and we'll just give a brief summary. of It's the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If I was to summarize these three phrases, they would be the spirit of wisdom and understanding is for the work that the Lord will do, that Jesus Christ will do. Understanding and wisdom. It's for work, it's for building, it's for accomplishing, it's for planning, it's for design, it's for the bringing about of the things that need to be done in his life. The working of the miracles, the, the, the teaching, the doing all sorts of things that, that move Christ forward to that place where he needs to be. In sacrifice toward the end of his life, as he anticipates his whole last year, almost on a daily basis, you see him anticipating, setting his face like a flit to Jerusalem to go there and to bear the sins and to die the death that must be died for the sins of his people. This is his work, but it's also the spirit of counsel and of might. That's warfare. If understanding and wisdom is is life and and work, the spirit of counsel is war and battle. Jesus' whole life was a battle against the forces of evil, against the temptations of Satan and the attempts to shipwreck his mission. Time and again, he had to recognize that when he saw it, anybody that suggested he shouldn't go to the cross, his answer was, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. And He fought a battle all the way through to the finish. In fact, He said, it is finished on the cross. And one of the meanings of that word is a battle has been won. And Jesus finished the battle. The battle against sin and death and and all of our enemies. He, as it were, prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. There in the feast that was His body and His blood upon the cross. And then the third one that's mentioned here is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the worship. That's the worship. Just as Jesus worshiped the Father, prayed to the Father, obeyed the Father, did what the Father told Him to do, even did the Father's will when His own natural inclinations were to let the cup pass, That's the spirit of submission. That's the spirit of loyalty. That's the spirit of adoration. That's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Jesus led His people in work, in war. And He leads His people in worship. And this is precisely what happens as we come through the Scriptures. We see the work of the Holy Spirit in the creation. The Spirit of God brings cosmos, out of the chaos. When we see the builders of the tabernacle, we see craftsmen. We see the Spirit of God bring out of raw materials a perfect type of Christ. We see in the prophets, we see the Holy Spirit of God putting His words in their mouth, out of the mouth of the prophets, by the Spirit of God and His anointing according to Ezekiel and would almost all testify that it was the Spirit of God. In Mary we see the Spirit of God bringing life out of a virgin womb. The life of Christ. The life of Jesus Emmanuel, the God-man. And then we move to the last verse. It's been put in here by our pastor that plans these texts and titles and then just hands them over to me to do the best I can with it. We fast forward to the early church and here we see the Spirit of God at Pentecost bringing a people out of the nations. Bringing a people out of the nations. There's one more thing. There are others, but there's one more thing I can't stop without mentioning that the Spirit of God does. And that is the Spirit of God brings about conversion in the life of you and me. It is the Spirit of God that brings us out of sin and out of slavery and death and darkness. It's the Spirit of God that gives us that call that is effectual in our life that he that conviction of sin and that sorrow for sin that enables us to see opens our blind eyes so that we might see our condition and call upon the Lord for salvation he comes to do his work of convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment well if I was a preacher and had some time I'd preach those three points right there the work of the spirit of God is to convict us of sin In yourself, you may think you're okay. And compared to your neighbor, you may be better than okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all about average, so let's don't worry about it. God saves one, He's going to save us all. He's probably going to save everybody because God's not unfair in any way. He's going to look past all of our sin. The Spirit of God only convicts you of your sin that enables you to see beyond the hubris and the blindness of your own soul, and enables you to see yourself for who you are before a holy God. The Holy Spirit of God convicts us of judgment. He tells us we're not going to get away with it. A righteous God will set the record straight. All of us will be held accountable for every thought, word, and deed done in the body appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And the Spirit of God convicts us, convinces us of righteousness. He shows us the righteous standards that God has for us to live, and the prosperity and the health and the wholeness and the, the good life that is there for the obedient person who learns to walk with the Lord and take that which is is a step at a time, keeping in step with the Spirit of God all along as we move through a progressive sanctification, a, a holiness of being more like Christ. It's the Spirit of God that takes our empty lives and gives it form. And what does the Bible always speak of when he talks about the Spirit? What's the command? Be filled with the Spirit.